The reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brothers. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Helen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live our lives, live lives worthy of Jesus and please him in every way. Please be with me as I speak and with each one of us as we listen. Amen. Uh, Today's sermon is one of those where it really would be helpful if you had the passage open in front of you. So I would urge you to look it up. Uh, You can find it on page 1182 of the Church Bibles, or I think it's on page 10 of these uh, little booklets. So please do uh, get it in front of you. Um, As has already been indicated, today's sermon is the start of a new series in which we'll be looking at the letter to the Colossians. 
Uh, and that letter contains teaching on almost every aspect of our lives. But its basic message can be summarized very simply. Jesus is sufficient for all of our needs. Uh, we should look to Jesus as we seek forgiveness for the past, as we seek maturity in the present, and as we seek hope for the future. Uh, all of those things are found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we shouldn't seek to add anything to Jesus as the source of our reliance in our lives. Not, not Jesus and religious observance. Not Jesus and some spiritual experience. Not Jesus and uh, strict rules for living our lives. Or Jesus and anything, for that matter. No, Jesus alone is sufficient for all of our needs. And if you remember nothing else that I say this morning, indeed, if you remember nothing else in this whole sermon series, at least remember that. And with that in mind, let's now look at the passage we've just heard read. Uh, as I say, it's the book of Colossians, 1182 in the Church Bibles, or page 10 of those little booklets. And unsurprisingly, the letter begins by saying who it's from. It's from the Apostle Paul and his much younger assistant, Timothy. Uh, in passing, it's worth noting what Paul says about himself there in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was very conscious of his calling by God to be an apostle because that was the source of his authority and it was also a source of great obligation for him. And he says, he, he's writing, verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae, or Colossae. Um, uh, Colossae was uh, a, a city in what's now the western part of Asiatic Turkey. It's somewhat over a hundred miles inland from Ephesus. It wasn't a particularly big city, nor was it a particularly important city. In fact, when Paul had been travelling around Asia Minor, he passed it by. So far as we know, Paul never visited the Colossian church or Colossae at all. Instead, he left preaching the gospel there to another Christian called Epaphras, about whom we know almost nothing. And I mention that because it points to the fact that there was nothing special about the Colossian Christians. They were ordinary Christian people, like all of us here in St. John's. And yet, look what Paul called them, verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae. Uh, the word translated holy people is in fact saints, to God's saints in Colossae. Now, I'm aware that centuries of the word saints being used to refer to people who are particularly holy or particularly good uh, may make it dis difficult for us to grasp what Paul's saying there. But, but note, who is it who he is referring to as saints, holy people? 
God's holy people. Well, he says it in verse 2. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are the saints who are God's holy people? It's those who have faith in Jesus, uh, using the phrase in in verse 4. Or again, verse 6, it's those who have heard and truly understood God's grace. Those Those who have heard and understood that Jesus has come and died and borne the penalty for our sins and are relying, trusting in Jesus for their acceptance by God. And you see, the key point is this. We're no different from the Colossians. If we have such faith in Jesus, then we too are part of God's holy people. We too are numbered among the saints. And there are really important consequences of that, of of which Paul mentions some at the end of our passage today. Look on to verse 12. Having talked about giving joyful thanks to the Father, he goes on to say it's the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. You you see, we have great hope for the future. Death isn't the end. If we are part of God's holy people, then we will share in Jesus' resurrection and participate in God's perfect recreation of which the Bible speaks. And what's the basis of that? Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's quite complicated. And if you want to look at it in detail, I suggest that sometime this week you take a look at Romans chapters 5 through 8. But trying to express it at least reasonably simply, what Paul is saying is this. In our natural state... We are part of the dominion of darkness. We have corrupt natures. We do wrong. And as a result, we are subject to condemnation. We are separated from God. And there's no way out of that apart from Jesus. The more we try to do what is right, the more we become aware of our failings, don't we? And more, the more we become aware of our inability to escape their consequences. We, we can't please God. We are, as Paul puts it, in the domain of darkness. But, but, when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, as Paul puts it here, we're taken out of that domain of darkness and we're moved to what Paul calls in verse 13 the kingdom of the son he loves the kingdom of Jesus or or as it's put in verse 12 the kingdom of light we are uh, as it says in verse 14 we're redeemed we have redemption Thank you. At least the front of the church remembered uh, that. We have redemption. We're rescued. We're freed from that slavery to sin. And we become God's holy people, God's saints. Uh, The word saints means those who are sanctified, uh, those who are set apart for God. So very simply what Paul's saying is, 
Once, before we became Christians, before we put our faith in Jesus, we were together with the great mass of humanity in the dominion of darkness. But as we put our faith in Jesus, we were lifted out of that into the kingdom of light, set apart as God's holy people. Now that's, that's great news. That's a tremendous truth and we should all rejoice in it. Uh, but, but I'm aware that a, a number of Christians are uneasy with it. There may be many reasons for that, but, but two in particular come to mind. And the first is this. What the Bible says, what Paul says here, is very sharp-edged, isn't it? It divides humanity into two domains, two dominions. The dominion of darkness and the kingdom of, of, of light. And in the modern world, at least in the modern Western world, there is a reticence, even hostility, about sharp-edged statements. In fact, it goes further. Uh, uh, People have just come to doubt the concept of truth. People doubt that absolute truth exists, or if it does, regard it as unknowable by us. But think about this. If God exists, then absolute truth exists. It necessarily follows. And the Bible tells us, indeed Jesus tells us, that that truth is knowable. In fact, it's been made known. Now, of course, uh, modern Western culture rejects that. But that rejection is just as much an assertion of truth as what the Bible says. It's saying that Jesus is wrong. And that's just as sharp-edged as the reverse. There's no way of us uh, getting away from the challenge that we need to decide where the truth lies. And there's a second point. I suspect that a number of Christians are uneasy about talking about us being the holy people of God because they feel that in some way it's suggesting we're better than other people, the great unwashed out there. But that couldn't be more wrong. You see, what we're being told here is that we are lifted from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of light the very moment we turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. Paul doesn't say we become part of God's holy people when, one, we turn to Jesus, and two, we amend our way of life. He doesn't say uh, we become God's holy people when, one, we turn to Jesus, and two, we do particular other things. No. He's making it clear that there is nothing we can do to qualify ourselves uh, to be God's holy people. Uh, Indeed, in verse uh, 12 here, he expressly says that it's God who qualifies us for the hope that that we have in the future. Uh, And if you look at verse 14, you'll see that that move from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light requires uh, that we be, be forgiven for our wrongs rather than receive it as a reward for what we've done right. I, I do worry 
that all of us, and I include myself incidentally in that, all of us from time to time just slip into believing that in some way our acceptance by God, our belonging to God's holy people depends at least in part on us. It's a very human way of thinking and I think all of us just slip back into it. But it is absolutely wrong. Our belonging to God's people doesn't belong in any part to us. It's based entirely on what Jesus has done. Fanny Crosby, in her great hymn, To God Be the Glory, puts it like this. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And we might add, that moment is lifted from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That moment becomes one of God's holy people, one of God's saints. And that doesn't change as the years pass following us becoming Christians, no matter what has happened during those years or what we have done. The hymn Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That doesn't change no matter how long we have been Christians. We need to make sure that we've heard and understand God's grace. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is sufficient for forgiveness for the past and sufficient for our hope for the future. But what about the present? Go back to verse 2. Uh, You may have noticed there was one bit of the part of verse 2 I've so far quoted uh, that I haven't commented on. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the implications of us becoming part of God's people is that we are all brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not. And then look at verse 4 and verse 5. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. What Paul's saying there is that the Colossians loved one another within the Colossian church and that this derived from the thing that God has stored up for us all as Christians. You see, they understood, they'd heard and understood God's grace and that uh, generated love within the fellowship of the Christians in Colossae. We love because God loved us first. That's 1 John 4.19. If we want to love one another more in this church, and I hope we do, uh, if we want that, then we need to focus more on what God has stored up for us and God's grace more generally. Uh, We should pray for that. And that's part of a bigger point. Take a look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not not stopped praying for you. Paul had never visited Colossae, but he prayed for them regularly. 
And what did he pray? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul prayed that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will by the Holy Spirit. And there are two points to note about that. First of all, he was not praying here that they would have what we might call guidance for the minutiae of life, guidance as to whether to change their jobs or who to speak to about Jesus. No, he was talking about God's big picture will, his purposes and requirements for his people. And then secondly, Paul was not suggesting that he wanted God to give the Colossians some special esoteric knowledge not available to other people. Now, he makes it clear in many other places that he totally rejected that kind of thing. What he's talking about is he prayed that the Colossians would have a full understanding of the basic truths that God has revealed in the world. And why did he want that? Well, it wasn't just so that they could be edified and have head knowledge. No, look at verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. It's obvious when you think about it. What do we need if we are to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way? Well, we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, don't we? And I hope we all want that. By the way, I wonder whether you ever pray in the manner that Paul prayed for the Colossians, either for yourself or for anyone else. Do you do that? I ask that question because I know that I generally don't. And yet, thinking about it, it is important that we should do so. There is a danger that in our prayers uh, we focus exclusively on the minutiae of life. But, but, but actually, we need to pray for ourselves and others for these big picture things, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, etc. Paul focuses on the big picture And in this passage, he goes on and, uh, having talked about bearing fruit in every good work, he mentions four specific aspects of that. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. There's an awful lot in that, isn't there? And I don't have time to go into it in detail now. But but there is one thing which I'll mention because you may notice it afterwards and be puzzled by it. Did you notice of those four things, the second is growing in the knowledge of God. And when you first think about it, you might think, hang on, isn't that circular? Paul is saying that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that uh, they grow in the knowledge of God. That's tautologous, isn't it? Um, But actually, I think what he has in mind is a virtuous spiral. In other words, we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, 
And as we obey that will, we bear fruit in good work. As we do that, we're working with God. We see God at work. We know more about God and his will. And so we bear more fruit and we go up that virtuous spiral. Uh, I, I suspect, in fact, I know there are people here who could bear witness to that in their own lives. I I can, I have experienced as I have put into practice the things that I've learned, I've I've, I've experienced God revealing himself more and, 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 and so on. I should just warn that I've also experienced the reverse which is that that we don't serve and we go down, we know less about God, etc. We need to pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all wisdom and understanding, don't we? Pray that for ourselves, pray that for other members of the church. And there's one final thing, the source of that wisdom and understanding Go back to verse 9, right at the end. All the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The source of the wisdom and understanding is God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit illuminates God's Word and gives us understanding and wisdom generally. Oddly enough, Paul doesn't actually talk much about the Holy Spirit in the letter to the Colossians, but the work of the Spirit underlies an awful lot of the things about which he does speak. Uh, For example, go back to verse 8, where he does in fact reference the Spirit. He talks about the Colossians' love in the Spirit. That love among the Colossian church uh, was not something that was of human origin. It was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. We shouldn't fool ourselves into believing that having become Christians, we can live our lives pleasing to God without his help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. But fortunately, we have that help. Because one of the things that happens as we go from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light is that we receive the Holy Spirit. As we repent and turn to Jesus... We are given God's Holy Spirit to assist us. If you note, we're we're actually back to Jesus. We're back to the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is sufficient for forgiveness of sins for the past. He's sufficient for our hope in the future. It's he who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And Jesus is sufficient for maturity in the present. He sends the Holy Spirit so that we would have wisdom and understanding, so that we would love one another, so that we would love God's holy people, among whom, of course, we are numbered. If, that is, we have repented and put our trust in Jesus. Amen.